I'm Brian Lowry, a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And this is Leadership for Society, a series of conversations that focuses on the most pressing issues of today. This fall, we're talking about race and power. Today, we're focusing on corporations, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. I had the pleasure of speaking with Simone Hill, Equity and Belonging Lead at Omidyar Network, and Quita Highsmith, Chief Diversity Officer at Genentech. We discussed the state of diversity, inclusion, and belonging in corporate America. Here are parts of our conversation from the live event, which proved to be quite open, frank, and honest. You're listening to the Leadership for Society podcast, the Race and Power series. So thank you both for joining us. Really excited to have this conversation with you too. So why don't you just um, first, Quito, why don't you start us off and just give us a quick description of your role and some information about Genentech. Hello everyone, I'm Quita Highsmith, Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer for Genentech. Genentech is considered the founder of the biotech industry 43 years ago, founded in South San Francisco. And we have 13,000 employees and we seek to discover medicines that treat very serious and life-threatening medical conditions such as cancer, multiple sclerosis, lupus, ophthalmology, neuroscience. Me personally, I've always been on the commercial side of the business, whether it's leading a sales force, marketing, franchises, or in government affairs, because it helps you understand the, the importance of the financial arm of the organization. And to be honest, I never, thought I would be in diversity and inclusion. My experience in diversity and inclusion is being a black woman. However, um, there was this opportunity that arose when the, um, I interviewed with the chief executive officer about the role uh, to really make a greater difference in the organization and to help us think bigger and bolder about diversity and inclusion and to bring us all along the journey. So. Um, who knew 2020 would turn out this way where we would be discussing race uh, so much at the office. Um, and it's an amazing opportunity to be a part of it. Great. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Well, I will say um, you never thought that you'd be in this role, but if being a black woman is your um, primary experience, you have a lot of it. So uh, <laughs> our whole lifetime. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Simone, what, what about you? Sure. Hi, good evening, everybody. My name is Simone Hill. I work at Omidyar Network. We are a social change venture, I'm really primarily focused on funding, trying to create and reimagine systems um, and the ideas that govern them to create a much more equitable and inclusive society for all. Um, I've been there for about two years now. I manage all of our diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging efforts, both as it relates to our internal work, um, our grant making, um, and I also manage our new work around pluralism um, and our new grant making portfolio on racial justice. Um, so I'm really excited, similar to Quita, um, to talk about this. I just said to her before we started, I'm like, I talk about race now all day, every day. It's both invigorating and exhausting, but I'm happy to be able to, to chat with y'all today. Great, well, we'll try to keep it on the invigorating. <laughs> um, so can you um, both, and I guess I'll, I'll start with you, Simone. Um, give me a sense of the size of your organization and the diversity of the workforce. And separate, I'd like to hear about the diversity of your leadership. Uh, 
Yeah, great questions. Um, yeah, so like I said, we're about 55 employees. Um, we have uh, been focused over the past uh, really two years on trying to in, in continuously improve the diversity of our workforce. Um, I think we've done a, a good job, not great job um, so far on, on those avenues. Um, I think uh, in terms of diversity of workforce, we're actually a majority female organization. Um, uh, our underrepresented minorities, um, including African, Black, African-American, and Hispanic or Latinx folks um, that make up around 10% or so of our, of our workforce. Um, but we, we do want to increase that, especially around our leadership. Um, so right now, our leadership team is actually quite diverse. Um, it's a predominantly female leadership team. Um, and that includes um, people of color, including myself. Um, and that is, that is something that we specifically focused on in our efforts last year, um, really trying to improve the diversity of both experience, demographics, but also thought on our leadership team. I'm gonna come back to that when yeah. I find diversity in a second, but let me yeah. turn to Krita. Krita, what about you? What's your, the diversity of your workforce and leadership look like? So our workforce is quite diverse. Um, we're based here in the Bay Area, so we have a high population of Asian talents. And so our overall workforce is about 50-50, people of color and people that are white. So our overall workforce is quite diverse. Where we have opportunities is to really think about our leadership and specifically around Latinx and African-American talent. Some of the things that the company has done over time, we set a goal around more women in leadership and we were able to actually achieve in our most senior ranks, director and officer ranks, where we have more than 50% of that leadership is female. And now our opportunity is to go back and really think about how we take those lessons that we learned in increasing our female leadership talent for our black and Hispanic employees. All right, great. So what I wanted to get to is what exactly are you all talking about when you talk about diversity? So you both use the term, we are very diverse. I have no idea what that means, really. I, I, actually, I know what people are talking about, but I'm not sure um, that everyone thinks the same thing when they hear those words, diversity. And also just expanding that a bit, equity and inclusion, right? What are, what, what are we talking about? We can add belonging to. So I'd like to hear from you. What, when you use those words, what are we really talking about? For, for us at Genentech, we recently defined that because I do think to your point, Brian, that um, we are using those words kind of loosely. For us, diversity is the visible and invisible differences that exist among all people. For us, inclusion is about a culture where everyone is respected. And when I talk to people of color, respect is very important and belongs and, and can thrive. So we use those three words, respect, belong, and thrive for inclusion. And then for us, equity means how do we have fair access for people um, and considering their unique barriers or privileges? Right. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a very similar way that we define it. So for us, diversity is all the ways in which individuals um, and groups of individuals uh, differ from one another. Um, that is both the demographic, the physical, kind of the, the standard diversity um, that you think of when you look at a job application and kind of the equal employment opportunity section. Um, so that could be race, um, that could be gender, that could be um, ability status, that could be um, also things like gender identity expression, sexual orientation. Um, we also think about diversity in terms of cognitive diversity. I think this is where a lot of um, 
nuance comes in with um, with companies like for us one of the things that we are we are trying very hard to continue to diversify um, is the types of industries or schools that people come from when they come to us um, on the equity side I think Rita nailed it right on the head I think the big thing and difference right um, that I make sure that everybody knows in terms of the difference between equity and equality equity acknowledges and understands um, that people come from different backgrounds different le levels of privilege um, have had different opportunities to succeed and therefore will need different levels of resources to continue to or to be successful. Equality, on the other hand, gives everybody the same thing kind of regardless of, of where they started. Um, and on the inclusion and belonging side, I kind of see that as like a, a step function, if you will. Um, so for inclusion, um, I love the kind of analogy of like inclusion is you, you have a seat at the table, right? You, are, you have been invited to the table. Um, where belonging comes in um, is then you, your voice, um, your experiences, um, every, all of the things about you and in your authentic self is um, valued and amplified at that table, right? You're not just a, a, a butt in the seat. You're, you're not just um, a face. You're not just there for numbers. Um, you are, your opinion is actually valued. Right, I, I have an issue with belonging. I'm going to come to that in a second. Uh -oh. All right, let's talk about it. I don't, I don't believe you. I think that's, I just don't believe you. But let, right. me, let me go back for a second and, and push on this diversity thing first. So I'm left-handed. Are you taking care of me? You take care of my left-handed people? Like, I just don't understand this diversity thing. It seems really broad. Like, how do you identify what characteristics of diversity matter? Like, everybody is unique. So tell me, how do you decide which dimensions of diversity you pay attention to? Well, I can start, you know what, Let, let's be clear. Diversity and inclusion is multifaceted. It's complex, but what we do know is that there are some systemic issues that have prevented black and Hispanic people from reaching their seat at the table, as Simone said. And what we're really talking about right now at Genentech is how do we really think transparently and be honest about the people who have been impacted by not having that seat at the table. Because what COVID has shown us is that Black and Hispanic uh, people are being disproportionately impacted by COVID. And why is that, right? Why is that? Because they're the frontline workers. They may not live in the places where there is great access to healthcare. They may not themselves have good healthcare. And so when we think about the work that we're doing, it's not just about representation of people in a seat, but it's also about the foundational work that we do, as well as how we spend our resources. Absolutely. If you are only focusing on the front end of the, the problem, if you're only focusing on the funnel, you're only focusing on getting kind of, again, butts in seats, you're going to have a revolving door of talent going right back out if they don't feel like they, their voice is valued, that their opinions matter. To your question about what it means, right, I think for us, we assessed our own workforce and tried to figure out what is it, what voices are we missing? Um, a big part of also what we're trying to do is realizing that we need more people who have been on the ground, who have grassroots um, infrastructure um, background. That's also diverse for who we are, right? So it's a mix of both. Um, no, it's not left-handed folks, <laughs> not necessarily. But to Guida's point, it's, uh, it's assessing what are the problems that we're trying to solve and to be able to solve those problems, who do we need in the room? And I just I asked and push on the diversity because I think um, people are uncomfortable sometimes talking about power differentials. But now I am going to get back to the belonging. 
Uh-oh. <laughs> Here's the thing. Like, I'm a professor at Stanford. And I show up, and I, I believe I show up in a way that people, once they sit, sit in the classroom with me, recognize it as the way a professor at Stanford might show up. Mm-hmm. But that's very different than the way I would show up at home. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not necessarily the way I talk when I talk to my my mom and my sister. And it's not just the the word choice, but it's just the way I present is different, right? Mm-hmm. And as a, a Black man, there's code switching involved in being in these corporate settings, mm-hmm. right? So when people talk about belonging, they talk as if I can just show up and be the way I am at home. Mm-hmm. I don't believe you. I just don't believe that's true. Simone, I don't believe that's true at Midiar. And Quita, I don't believe that's true at Genentech. Is that, and the question is, is that the goal? Are you telling me that that's what I should, if I, if I got a job at a Midiar, a job at Genentech, I can show up the way I am at home and it's all gonna be okay. People are gonna be like, yeah, he's smart. He has a lot to add to this organization. You know, I would, I would say yes. Um, I show up, like I literally was interviewing my uh, head of marketing um, for a role and I have not met, we, this is through the, you know, the Zoom calls. And she literally said to me after she got the job, she was like, I wanted to come and work for Genentech because I felt like you sounded just like you did at home. And you know, when we think about um, the code switching, for many years, I wore my hair in a relaxer, right? Because that was what I thought was the code to fit in. And I decided that I was no longer going to do that, um, that I'm going to just grow the hair at, that came out of my head, biology, just um, and, and be who I was naturally. We do sometimes believe that we have to change our appearance, change our look, change our dress change our you know history of our family because many times in the black community we don't have the perfect family and we have not been able to bring our whole selves to work but i believe that organizations are making changes and are accepting of people and moving them into leadership because that's how we're going to attract the talent when they see people who look like them, speak like them, act like them, then they're more likely to say, that's the organization that I want to be at. Top talent especially is demanding that now. They're demanding spaces um, to allow them to be who they are. Um, Are we there yet? Absolutely not. Um, There's so much to do. Um, I mean, we have to dismantle a whole bunch of white supremacy culture first in all of our organizations before we get there, to be quite frank. Um, but into your question, are we striving for that? Yeah, yeah. I, and I think for me, similar to Quita, there are small, um, small decisions that I make every day, especially in my role, to be as authentic and vulnerable as possible to show the folks around me that look like me that like, no, it's okay. Like I say, I say y'all all the time. That's, I'm not going to say you all, I'm not proper all the time. I, you know, and that's not just me that's me not necessarily not making the decision not to code switch. It's just who I am. And if I'm passionate, the y'all is going to come out, right? Um, and it's, so it's something as small as that. Got it. And so how do you do that? So tell me, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming to your organization. I'm, I'm just telling you that I'm coming with a PhD to any of your organizations. I'm not really hearing that. I'm not going to start talking the way I talk at home, at work, right? I just don't have faith. I, I mean, I care about my career. Mm-hmm. And I want to be successful and I'm not, I mean, I'm smart enough to understand how things work. What are you doing to change that for me? Like, not generalities, like you all are in these positions. Yeah. What do you mm-hmm. do to mm-hmm. change that for me? 
Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I gave up being the queen of England a long time ago. Uh, that is not who I am. Right. And, and what the company is paying us to do is to do our job. And if I've got to be thinking, OK, did I raise my hand too much? Did I do this? Did I wear that? I'm using up brain space when I need to be focused on delivering my best work. And that's what I believe companies care about. Do your job. The other thing that we're doing right now, we're fielding interviews so that we can get some qualitative insights about what is it like to work at Genentech for a black person, for Asian, for African-American, and for a white person. So we actually understand within the organization, what is the experience like? Because we, we won't be able to have people feel like they belong if we don't really understand what are the different experiences that people are feeling. So we're, we're building that information now with a third party, some one-on-one -on -one surveys, so that we can give that to our leadership um, so that we can start to make some change. The other thing that we are doing that we've just rolled out to our most very most senior leaders across our organization is each of them has to have a diversity and inclusion plan of action. You might have the CEO support, but then there's the frozen middle, right? That's the people in the middle who like DNI political. I, I don't know why we're doing it, right? And so for us to really get under belonging, those are the people that we have to convince. Hey, you, you said something about leadership. So I, have, I want to push or not push, just ask a question about that. So a lot of the people here are um, MBA students who are leaders and aspire to go out and develop um, further leadership abilities and opportunities. What do leaders not understand about your work that you'd want them to know? What, we, what people need to understand is that you have to demonstrate leadership and diversity and inclusion, right? And diversity and inclusion has to be budgeted. You budget what you value. So if you got a line item for marketing, you got a line item for sales, then you need to have a line item for diversity and inclusion or, or people are not going to take you serious if you don't budget what you value. The other thing I think is you have to watch out for what I call friendly fire. And that is the people who go, oh my God, absolutely. I am the first one who supports diversity and inclusion. And the minute you leave the room, they say, mm, you know what? That's not going to help us go faster. That's not going to help us do this. And so we have to really be taking people for what they actually do, not what they actually say. Um, so first of all, as Quita said, it cannot just be um, our job as the heads of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's not just the CEO job. It's not even just the leadership team's job. It, it is literally everybody. Um, you also have to be in a space in which you understand that this is a journey, right? This is not you. If you could dismantle white supremacy or any of the isms in a year, we, I don't think we'd be in, I, I choose to believe we wouldn't be in the situation we are, right? We are trying to undo centuries of issues, right? With this work. So it takes time. So they have to understand that in terms of budget, it's not a one-year budget. It will take time. You will get it wrong more than you get it right. You'll get, get yourself back up and you'll get back on the horse, right? So the last thing I would say is understanding, I can't tell you how many senior leaders I've spoken to, and particularly in interviews um, that have said, so tell me like, what would your strategy be? And I tell them what my strategy would be for um, DEI at, at that organization. And their response is like, but what about the trainings? I just want to hear about the bias trainings. And I'm like, wait a minute. 
So understanding that there is programmatic change and systemic change, both are necessary and system to, to focus on the actual underlying systems. And by systems, I mean, um, all of your people op systems. So how you hire, how you fire, how you promote, how you rate people, all of your systems around how you develop your products or your services. So for us, like we are thoroughly examining our grant making process to make sure like to figure out what are we missing? Who are we missing? Are we being equitable across the board with our grantees? So it's that that level of thought and work again takes time. If you want to just if you think you can solve the negative impacts of slavery with a two day bias training, you failed already. You just, just, just you know, you're, you're probably going to cause more harm than good if that is your strategy. So that's the type of stuff that leaders, that senior leaders especially need to understand. Got it. And so how's the recent surge in um, awareness of racial inequity? How's, how's that affected you all? So obviously things have shifted dr dramatically, both COVID and then uh, after the George, George Floyd killing, things have come um, really heated in the country and i'm curious how that's affected the work that you all do you know i think that uh, what i i have told the team sometimes we got to heal the healers right because everybody is coming to us and you know we've instituted at genetech what we call dialogue circles and where we have a senior leader we also have some mental health champions and we allow employees to come and just have the conversation because some people don't know what to say, right? But they, they want to be involved. They want to, to do something. I'm happy that we now have a conversation that is front and center within the organization that people are taking a part of. And for many people, it's the very first time that they are doing this. And I do think we have to allow some grace, right? Because it's clumsy. We haven't been discussing it. So we don't know how to discuss it with one another. And so we do need to allow people to have grace. But we also don't need to be asking all the black and Hispanic people all the time, well, how are you doing? Because that's exhausting as well. Like do your own work and do your own research so you know what's going on. And I've, I've been saying like the problems aren't new, the tech is, right? So we've known that about police brutality for, for years. We've known about the damages, um, you know, seen and, and unseen um, done to black and brown bodies for centuries, right? None of it's new. We, we now have been awakened um, to some things that some of us have, have experienced our whole lives, right? So people have to come to terms with their bias. They have to come to terms with their privilege. Um, they have to come to terms with the, the decisions and the actions they make um, and the actually, actually thinking about the impact that it has on other people. Um, we've seen a lot of organizations that um, have, you know, Twitter, I, I, when I, when I saw, I think it was like fruit by the foot and like, like Jolly Rancher and all those types of companies come out like Black Lives Matter. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> everybody like out the woodworks, everybody now, now, you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, and it's still TVD, how much of it is performative and how much is authentic, right? Time will tell. The, the litmus test for me is, are you again looking at things from a systemic perspective? Like, are you changing things underneath the hood and not just, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, hang a little air freshener, aka do a training here, right? That kind of stuff. And when people ask, like, well, what can I do as an individual if I'm not a senior leader? My message to, to everybody is get your people, collect your people, 
you one by one get them together so it's not just on the backs of black and brown people it's it's on all of us to educate our own individual people um, about like what are the biases that we're seeing what are the privileges how can we actually do better how can we improve um, in terms of your explicit targets i mean generally when people start saying all right we want to increase i'm going to focus on representation for a second um, and leadership may be one thing but as you start to go down it's common that there's pushback right, that not everyone is on board. And I assume that still must be true now. So I'm curious, um, have you all gotten pushback on some of your efforts? And if so, what does that look like and how have you responded to it? I wouldn't quite call it pushback. Um, I would call it a polite inquiry. Uh, <laughs> From folks, I, said, I, thought, I thought you felt like you didn't need to code switch. Some no, because it's, because it's not quite pushback, honestly. It, it's like actual genuine questions. Um, and, and I say that with full honesty, um, because I think there have been certain folks that I've spoken with that like just don't know. Like they, they're genuinely trying to understand the why. But when, when you're thinking about whether it's um, bringing folks in or kind of trying to make sure that they... Um, uh, are in a space in which they want to stay and that they're th that they're thriving. Your middle managers are your like front line for this work, right? Both on the hiring and the retention piece. So we have um, over the past year been developing some some trainings for them, and it's much more of like awareness and uh, deeper coaching for our managers to understand. Um, first of all, even understanding like what 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 these targets and things like that mean for them, right? Like sometimes we get questions where they're just like, so does that mean I can't hire a white, a white person? And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> that is not at all. You know what I mean? Like people just not quite understanding what this means. Um, and so, so yes, it, it, there has been like some just questions and, and kind of discomfort with like what what it all means but I think um, through these conversations that we're having we're, we're starting to move the needle in terms of an understanding and um, an actual deliberate practice for my managers to do this yeah I mean let's be real there are some people who are like um we should just I think you mentioned this earlier Brian we should just hire the most qualified candidate well, are you saying that if you hire somebody black or Hispanic, they now are no longer qualified, right? Like we need to watch the language that we use because that irritates me to no end. Like you're not even going to get a chance to get interviewed unless you qualified, right? And so we, there's over 5,000 colleges and universities in the U.S. So we shouldn't just be picking people from three schools, right? So we need to broaden what good looks like, or otherwise we're gonna to continue to live in the echo chamber that if you act alike, think alike, walk alike, talk, get even talk alike, then that's who we should be choosing. That's not diversity, and that's not how you cultivate the best minds. So I do think that we have to constantly reinforce what does good look like, what, and be intentional in our hiring practices so that we can bring the best talent to the organization. Yeah, so I, I hear you pushing back against what is the, people talk about the pipeline argument, right? Like there's not enough people out there that are um, qualified, so you're pushing back against that, I hear that. Let me, let me push back a little bit on that. So um, we also know there's clear research on this and evidence that the disparities that we're talking about at the level of the organizations you all work exist at all levels of society. So if you have a, a, a little um, black girl who has the same amount of talent as a little white girl, that the possibility that she's going to get the same 
um, access to educational resources and others where she can thrive. And by the time you all look at those two women, they might not look the same, right? But that is just the nature of the society in which we live right now. And so as you think about that, so I'm, I'm gonna, like I'm, I accept the pipeline argument you're making against that, but there is still this inequity all through the system. How far down is your responsibility? So if you're, the reality is if you believe what I just said, um, there are people who are not, you aren't getting the seed, not because they didn't have the talent, but because they didn't have the opportunity, right? And you can hire them now because they didn't, previously they didn't get the chance to get to the place where they would be a reasonable hire for you. What's your responsibility there? Is there any responsibility there? Is it just to find the best people at this stage or do you feel responsibility to go deeper down in the societal pipeline? We, we do. And we believe it's gonna require some boat action, right? Um, and so we have an initiative that we've started called Kindergarten to Careers. What we wanna do is really um, have a comprehensive engagement plan that allows us to think about the pipeline, especially for us, because we want people that can go into um, medicine and life sciences. So we're starting, um, like I said, at kindergarten. So we're starting very early. So this is a 10-year ambition that we're looking at on our kindergarten to careers effort. So, um, you know, there's recently been a lot of discussion about Milton Friedman, right? The role of the organization is simply yeah. to maximize shareholder value. You all lobby. You're a big organization. You have to have lobbying efforts. And yeah. my guess is most of that lobbying is about things that have to do directly with biotech. So here's a question. If you all are really committed to these issues of social justice, are you out there lobbying government on behalf of those issues? And if so, what things have you lobbied for that are not directly relevant to biotech? Well, the one thing that I just sent an email out to the officers today is um, California Prop 16 and Genentech's strong support of that. Not only are we supporting that with our words, but we're supporting that with our dollars because we do believe that um, race can be uh, a factor in college selection because we know that for us in California, a lot of our workforce is going to potentially come from um, the California school system. So we're absolutely supporting um, other opportunities that we see that will make a difference, a fundamental difference in who the workforce is. Okay, all right. And now I'm gonna now I'm gonna turn back to Simone and say I'm scared after that question. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also been lately some questions about the role of philanthropy, right? Like so maybe that's just the cover of people who have a lot of money to maintain control of how the society functions. Mm -hmm. What we really need is the people to make these decisions. Right, so you're you're working basically for a philanthropic organization. Mm -hmm. What's the role of philanthropy in dealing with these big societal issues, and shouldn't that really be the role of government? There's there's arguments for sure for on both sides, and then in terms of philanthropy, I think one of the big things that we all as funders are trying to figure out um, is how do we do this um, in a way that really understands the power dynamics at play, both the power um, from which the money that we are, are, are using comes, um, right, but also the power um, that comes in the relationship between 
um, grantee and funder, right? And so we at ON have been doing quite a bit of work um, around decolonizing wealth. Um, it's kind of a practice in a book and, you know, um, a, a strategy um, uh, uh, popularized by um, Edgar Villanueva. So highly recommend that for anyone that's interested in that, that really thinks about the power dynamics, both internal and um, as it relates to our external grant making as a funder. Great. So we have just a few more minutes left. I'm going to give you each uh, a minute just to wrap up any any brief closing statements you might have. So, Quita, you want to go ahead? We have to stop tiptoeing around race and, and, and in our industry, health inequities. A change agent is somebody who is willing to put their capital on the line and confront issues and make systemic change. And I'm asking the students and the people listening on this call, it's time to be a change maker. Step up from ally and be a change maker. Great, thanks. Simone? I, I love that. Um, I have two messages. So I know that there's a lot of folks um, on this call likely that are interested in act, the actual work of, of doing diversity, equity, and inclusion. I applaud you. Um, get ready for the ride of your life. It will be some of the most exhausting and also, again, the most invigorating work that you'll do. Um, and it's so necessary, right? Like we are um, in this world, um, not just in the U.S., um, really at a place in which we are really, really trying to, to fight for kind of the soul of, of humanity, right? And it really, really does start with, with you, with each of us individually, um, taking the time to actually confront our own issues, privilege, bias. We all have it. Even as a Black woman, I have bias, right? Um, so being okay with that and being willing to do that work personally, to become more aware so that unconscious becomes conscious, so that you are then able to, you feel much more comfortable and confident to be able to say, hey, I actually believe this and let's have a conversation about that. And let, let me help you understand like, why this is actually not, not correct, why this narrative is false. Um, and I think if we are starting to have those conversations um, on a one-to-one -one basis and we can do that at scale, it will make me and Quita's work much easier, much smoother <laughs> if we can do that. Well, thank you both for showing up. It was uh, great to talk to you both. I appreciate the candor and forthrightness. It's often hard to have that around issues of race. And thank you both for the work you're doing on these issues. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Leadership for Society, Race and Power, the podcast series. This show is produced by Stanford Graduate School of Business, and our theme music is composed by Belief. For more episodes in this series, make sure to subscribe to the Leadership for Society podcast.